0: On July fourth, eighteen o three, the United States acquired the French territory of Louisiana. Eight hundred twenty-eight thousand square oh, it did that last time. Eight hundred and twenty-eight thousand square miles, stretching from modern-day Louisiana all the way up to the Dakotas. The United States government paid the French. million, or about $18, a square mile. On August 31st, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark set out from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, August 31st, 1803, just a couple months later. They set off from Pittsburgh down the Ohio River leading an expedition that would cross the territory acquired by the Louisiana Purchase to explore the Pacific Northwest. On May 26, 1805, Lewis and Clark saw the Rocky Mountains for the first time. It probably looked like this. Uh, their journals indicate excitement upon seeing the mountains, and then the journals change to, oh no, we need to cross those. Oops. Uh, a couple months later, November 7th, they spotted the Pacific Oceans, and then they came to its shores two weeks later. Lewis and Clark were the first Americans to cross the Continental Divide, the first Americans to see Yellowstone, to enter into Montana, and to produce an official description of these areas. During their travels, Lewis and Clark drew over 125 maps, many of which were used as the foundation for America's westward expansion. The Louisiana Purchase revealed new territory to be pioneered. It revealed new territory to be pioneered. And those of us who follow Jesus in this cultural moment find ourselves at a similar moment of opportunity, of possibility. We live at the intersection of a global pandemic, a racial justice revolution, and one of the most anxious election seasons in living memory. And, and these massive experiences, beginning back in early March, these massive and events have revealed for us, for God's people, new territory, new frontiers that Jesus is calling us to take, new places to pioneer, just as Jesus has done. Jesus is described in the book of Hebrews as the author and pioneer of our faith, and he is calling us, his people, to pioneer with him. So for the next four weeks, we're going to look at specific frontiers that the Lord is revealing I would be bold enough to say I think he's doing that for the church in the West, but for in particular for us as a spiritual family, four frontiers for us to pioneer. Uh, we'll talk about becoming a church that gathers and scatters. We'll, become a, we'll talk about becoming a church that loves mercy and does justice. We'll talk about a church that uh, relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. But today, the frontier we're going to look at is a frontier that was first taken by the early church. The early church that we meet in the opening pages of the book of Acts is one of the most pioneering groups of people uh, that we have ever seen. And so we want to follow in their footsteps to pursue this first frontier, and that first frontier is becoming a church that transforms, becoming a church that transforms. So if you got that Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible, look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. As you turn there, I want to tell you about this camp song that Steph knows, I'm alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic. I'm not singing it to you because I love you. Uh, And uh, I'm alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic. As we turn the pages to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see a church alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic. Luke writes, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Verse 44. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared their money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. We're backtracking a bit this morning and going back to the ends of Acts 2. In the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes with fire and wind and empowers his people uh, as temple space to accomplish the mission that Jesus has laid out. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They proclaim the gospel in languages unknown to them. And people come around to see what this thing that is happening is. So Peter stands up and gives a sermon. And at the end of the sermon, 3,000 men, in addition, dozens of thousands of, I mean, uh, dozens of men and women and children. So probably numbering 5, 7, 10,000. Uh, joined the church that day. And immediately Luke tells us about all these people being added to the spiritual family of Jesus and then gives us a snapshot of the church, alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic. And in this little paragraph, we see five elements that drive a church that is laser-focused on transformation. Uh, The first element of a church that is alive, awake, alert, enthusiastic is a devotion to God's word. They didn't have Bibles, so they couldn't do Bible studies, the early church. So what does it mean that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching? Before Jesus ascended, uh, he gave the disciples a 40-day crash course in the kingdom of God. He showed them through the law, the prophets, the writings, all of the Old Testament, uh, how he was the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and fears through all the years. Uh, so now the apostles are passing this teaching on to ordinary people in the community they are devoted to the apostles teaching they are devoted to prayer and praise they are devoted to worship Uh, they are devoted to prayer they have frequent prayer meetings some of which we get to see in the book of acts these moments of praying for boldness in the midst of opposition Uh, in acts 12 praying for peter's miraculous release Uh, Paul McConaughey, a friend of mine, would say that the early church has a white-hot spiritual center. A white-hot spiritual center driven by prayer and praise. There was a radical community, a radical commitment to one another. Jesus came from a family to start a family. And he starts his family, and they begin to treat themselves like family. And we know this because it says in verse 44 that all the believers met together together and shared everything they had this is not communism this is family this is not socialism this is family in a family in a family if i need something i can ask over the summer we needed to trim some trees my uncle has a lot of this stuff we asked my uncle can i borrow a couple things to trim trees and by we trim the trees i mean my stepdad trimmed the trees when he was here in july and uh... In a family, we share our resources to care for one another, right? And that's what's happening in the early church. They're behaving as a family, not as an an alternative government, uh, not Marxism, not communism, but family, radical community. There's proclamation and demonstration. Uh, They proclaim the gospel through word, and they demonstrate it by being a community committed to justice, committed to the whole person, committed to going to the other, to finding the image of God in each person and including them in this community. Miracles, signs, wonders. And inevitably, there's multiplication. In Acts 2, there's about 3,000 men in the church. In Acts 4, there's about 5,000. In Acts 8, the Christians uh, in Jerusalem scatter throughout the Mediterranean world, and the church grows exponentially exponentially. Multiplication and growth is a necessary part. And these five elements working together create, Luke says, a deep sense of awe. Not awe. The longer you're a Christian, the, longer you, the more you come to like cute. I don't understand why. Uh, it's not a deep sense of awe, it's a deep sense of wow. Look at what God's doing in our midst. That deep sense of awe came from people were being added to their fellowship day by day. The early church was baptizing and adding to the fellowship every day, what we do in a year, right? And these five elements worked together drove an engine that caused the early church to be an engine for transformation. Do I need the, here, let me see. These these five elements working together caused, caused the early church to be a church that worked to that caused transformation. It was a church that transforms. I mean, if you read the book of Acts, you almost get numb to the fact how the book of Acts is about transformation. Sometimes I turn left on Route 45, come down State Road to get to my house, and I pull in my driveway, and I don't really have a clear memory of what happened between when I turned and pulling into my driveway. Does this happen to you? Do you also wonder if there are just burning vehicles and dying people scattered behind you because you weren't paying attention? Um, we, we, don't, we don't always notice. What we don't notice the longer we read the book of Acts is how much of this book is about personal transformation, about Lydia in Acts 16, an independent woman, an entrepreneur who owns a dyeing business, like for clothing, dyeing the clothes. She's incredibly wealthy. She don't need no man, but she hears Paul preaching and she puts her faith in him and begins to in Jesus and she begins to fund the mission of Jesus. Later on uh, a slave girl is set free from demonic oppression in Acts chapter 18. Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team, hear hear Paul preaching and become part of his team. They begin to travel with him. I mean, what kind of transformation takes place that causes you to uproot your life and home and help the mission of Jesus go throughout the known world? That's transformation. And and, and perhaps the highest point of this is this guy named Saul, who in Acts chapter eight, is actively seeking to arrest and try Jews who claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And in Acts chapter nine, has an encounter with the presence of Jesus that causes him to be totally transformed. Transformation is all throughout the book of Acts. And so there's the church then, a church marked by transformation, and then there's the church now. And if we're being honest, the transformation that is present in the book of Acts is not our norm. We come to church to get smarter. We come to church for an experience or a feeling but if we were being really honest, we're not seeing the transformation that scripture promises us. You know, I was, I was tempted to cite some statistics here, but I don't need to, because you and I know exactly what I'm talking about. Why is it that many of the Christians that we meet are emotionally immature, angry, bitter, gossipy, and judgmental? Why is it that the general view of Christians in our culture is so negative? It's because we know, we know people, genuine and sincere people who have been a part of a church for 30, 40, or even 50 years who are still somehow stuck. I am fully aware that we will not be perfect until heaven, I get that. But why is it that in my short journey of pastoring, I meet people who willingly admit that their anger is out of control? Why is it that I meet people who are anxious all the time, despite Scripture's promise, if you pray, God's peace will guard your heart and your anxiety will diminish? Why is that? Why is it that we meet Christians who, after 30, 40, or 50 years, are not experiencing really any freedom from a wound in their childhood? And and forget those of you who have been hanging around Jesus for decades. What about those of you who have put your faith in Jesus in the last three, four, or five years? It's a lot of you in this room. It's a lot of you listening online. I mean, in your early days of following Jesus, there was a massive burst of transformation. It was like somebody threw miracle grow on there. And then you woke up one day and there was like a slowing and, and a plateauing. And maybe even a halt. And so we assume that it's just gonna be the way it is. The trauma will still be there. The depression will be untouched by prayer. I wanna be really vulnerable in, in this particular sermon. So a few weeks ago, um, I was having a conversation with Zach Beiler, uh, and uh, he said to me, you know, I feel like you are constantly talking about how you are trying to improve yourself. How you're constantly trying to improve yourself personally, you're constantly trying to improve yourself professionally. He said, that sounds really exhausting. And I went home and I started telling Steph about this conversation we had and I said, here's why I'm like that. Because there are only two or three, there are only three people in the world that I believe that that there's nothing I can do to make them love me less. There are only three people in the world that I believe there's nothing I can do to make them love me less. One of them has to because she's married to me. The other two are just random occurrences of fate. And so if I get better, if I do everything right, if I'm the best leader and the best parent and the best husband and the best pastor, nobody can say I did something wrong and then I won't be unlovable. Now listen, I have been following Jesus closely for 20 years almost and I'm following Jesus not because I'm a professional Christian that's what pastors are right professional Christians right I'm not following Jesus cuz I'm a professional Christian I'm following Jesus because he's the pearl of great price Jesus says uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl and a merchant seeing it sold everything he had so he could buy the pearl Jesus is the pearl of great price and I have been pursuing Jesus on a personal level Not perfectly, far from it, but intentionally and in an ongoing and in a sustained way for 20 years. So my question is, why is there still a ball of insecurity that lives inside of me? Why? And if I'm stuck, you're stuck. I'm just guessing. If I'm stuck, you're stuck. We're all finding these places of stuckness. Why? We're stuck with the pain of our past. What we did, what was done to us. Or the pain of our present You know, a a disease, a diagnosis, grief, depression. We're stuck with emotional maturity. We, We hold grudges. We talk about other people behind their backs. We're trapped in a cycle of conflict at home and at work. We're stuck in unhealthy relationships. We bounce from codependent friendship to codependent friendship. We can't quit a friendship group that really causes us to make bad choices. Our marriage, our parenting, is marked by difficulties that our faith can't quite seem to touch. We're stuck with our compulsions and our addictions. It could be food, it could be sex, it could be spending, whatever it is. We're stuck with spiritual strongholds. We're stuck with lies about materialism and individualism and tribalism that we have bought hook, line, and sinker from our culture and we just assume it's the way it is we're stuck and what we do is we throw up our hands and assume that moderate transformation is all we can expect in this life while getting a little bit more knowledgeable about the Bible and my fundamental question is that what Jesus promised is that what Jesus promised so the difference between the early church and us is this They did not have the devotionals. They did not have the conferences or the church buildings or Christian radio or podcasts or books or concerts or t-shirts or study Bibles or apps. I mean, heck, they didn't even have Bibles. If all that was stripped away from you, what would you have? See, for the early church all they had was the only thing they truly needed. All they had was an interactive relationship with the presence of Jesus. All they had was an interactive relationship with the presence of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. All they had was the only thing they really needed. Dallas Willard um, says, the path to spiritual and emotional maturity is rooted in the presence of Jesus. The path to spiritual and emotional maturity is rooted in the presence of Jesus. So let's think back to a second to Paul. He was called Saul for a minute. He's on the road to Damascus. He's going to arrest Jews that are claiming Jesus is the Messiah. And suddenly a bright light hits the road and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul has an encounter with the living Jesus, with the presence of Jesus, and it says that scales fell from his eyes. And in that moment, he began a lifelong journey of transformation based on an interactive relationship with God. In 2 Corinthians 12, later on in his life, Paul tells the church that he has what he calls a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh. A messenger from Satan. And scholars debate what this was. Was it a physical limitation? Was it some sort of chronic pain? Was it emotional? Was it physical? What was it? All we know is that he asked the Lord three times to remove it. Three times. But instead of removing it, in an interactive moment with the presence of Jesus, he says, The Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In the midst of his pain, he has an encounter with Jesus, and he goes on to say, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is why I have no problem telling a very vulnerable story about something going on inside of me, because I I can rejoice in my weaknesses, because then the power of Christ rests upon me. Maybe not rejoice. Paul says, for the sake of Christ, I am content. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. Calamities is a big word calamities like i don't know global pandemic if i breathe a word about any politician in any social setting somebody will hit me for when i am weak then i am strong for when i am weak then i am strong here's what's paul saying Paul has an encounter with Jesus in the midst of his pain and Jesus does something horrifying he does not remove the pain he does not say oh man I'm so sorry that you're uncomfortable let me fix that he does not make the pain go away but he transforms Paul's experience of pain and Paul is a different person Earlier in 2 Corinthians, if you got a Bible, you could flip there to 2 Corinthians 3. It's not on, it's not on the screen, but I think it's, it's helpful. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says this in verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is Freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me just unpack this. Paul says, We are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of the Lord. The image of the Lord. The image of Jesus in Romans 8 29 Paul says God knew what he was doing from the very beginning he decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son the son stands first in the line of humanity he restored listen to this we see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him Jesus is the original copy And God's desire in our salvation is to restore us fully to become what Jesus is like. And that's what happens in heaven. In that moment, we are known as we are known. We become fully free to be exactly who we were created to be. Paul says, we are being transformed to the same image, notice this, by degrees. From one degree of glory to another. From one degree of glory to another. Our life with Jesus is a life of progressive, ongoing, incremental, but still very real transformation. Still very real transformation. There's grace there, there's an invitation there, right? That I don't have to get myself perfect all at once. That's a, that's a whole project. But the challenge is, when was the last time I felt like there was a change in degrees? And not, did I just get smarter? Not, do I have a new insight that I didn't have a week ago? But is there measurable, noticeable change in my relationships? And all of this transformation, we are being... He says, we are beholding the the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. And he says, for this comes... This refers back to transformation. For this transformation comes from the Lord... Who is the Spirit. See, what Paul is saying is that it is nearness to the presence of Jesus that transforms us. It is undergoing a lifelong process of developing an interactive, conversational relationship with Jesus. That's what causes us to be transformed. An interactive, ongoing conversation with Jesus. So after I have this conversation with Zach, I'm journaling the next day. Journaling is a good thing to do. It helps you kind of, what's God getting my attention? What, that, what does that look like? So I'm journaling, and I write, you know, Jesus, in this conversation, I feel like I have been taken to ground zero of who I am, right? And it, I got this picture in my head of, uh, it was like it was at the bottom of a mine, and I wasn't thinking of mining, so I'm assuming it was the Lord. And at the bottom of the mine was a bottomless pit. And that's where all of the affection and genuine love people around me give me. And it just goes down in there, and it never fills up. And uh, I felt like Jesus was standing next to me at the pit. I, I swear to you, I could almost feel like his hand was on the small of my back. And I felt like he said to me, I can go in the pit. I can go in the pit. Just because it's bottomless for you doesn't mean it's bottomless for me because what's impossible for you is possible for me. So I grab my computer and I look up on the Bible the word pit. I knew it was in there, I just didn't know where. And uh, I come to Psalm 103 verse 4 that says, God redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Find Psalm 40, verse 2 says, He drew me up from the pit of despair, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock. And if what Paul is saying is true, that moment of genuine interaction with the presence of Jesus moved me from one degree of glory to another. Am I living in total victory over my insecurity? No. Am I more aware of how that's infecting my relationships in the way I think? Yes. Am I more able to bring it to Jesus for transformation? Yes. Am I perfect? No. But here's what I know for sure. I know that Jesus is in the pit. So I told Steph, we're going to do a series called Frontiers, and we're going to name four frontiers that we as a spiritual family are going to pursue and uh, I said I want this series to be about who we're gonna be in five years and it's gonna be really great and my, my wife took her very visionary very conceptual husband by the hand and said that's really stressful so she said let's let's build it out so that every week we talk about what we're gonna do today what we're gonna do over the next year or so, and then where we'd like to see ourselves in five years. Oh, thanks, babe. Good job. She's gonna be preaching next weekend on being a church that gathers and scatters, so I'm excited about that. So here's how this journey of becoming a church that transforms begins. It begins by us committing ourselves to a spiritual discipline of listening and growing in our individual capacity to relate to Jesus. And a really handy thing that I was taught about two years ago is to just, and some of you have heard me teach this, and I'm not just teaching it again because I um, couldn't think of anything else, it's because we're not, I'm not doing it perfectly yet, we're not doing it perfectly yet, and so we want to keep pressing in on the same thing. And isn't it kind of nice when Kyle just doesn't come up with a new thing you have to do, it's just like, oh, good reminder, that's good I think too, so. Um, every day it's, it's good to ask these questions. first. Father, what are we doing today? Jesus says, I only do what I see my Father doing. As a driven, task oriented person, I could tell you on any given day what I'm doing. Jesus is interested in telling me about what we're doing. Second, Father, who do I need to pay attention to today? And if you're trying to grow an interactive relationship with Jesus, this is probably the answer that will come clearest at first. My wife, my kids, you know, this friend, Steph's really disciplined about praying this in a good way, and that's if, if she reaches out to check in on you, that's probably why, because the Lord brought you to mind. Father, what do I need to be reminded of today? What do I need to be reminded of today? So ask those questions journaling every day or praying every day or in the shower or while driving. And what you will find is over time the answers to those will will become clearer. But where would we like to go over the next year? So that's this week. But what about like a year from now? One of the things that we'd like to press into as a church is developing a ministry of inner healing prayer. Of inner healing prayer where we bring our trauma, we bring our hurts, we bring kind of these painful things from our past, and in a prayer time we kind of invite Jesus to heal them. We've found this tool called the manual prayer. I can't move on from it. I I can bounce from idea to idea pretty quick, so if, if I stick with something for about six months, you know it's good, you know. And so, over the next year, we'd like to do some training and build a team so that people can start experiencing that freedom because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Five years from now, we want to just hear regular testimonies of personal transformation and inner healing through Jesus' presence. Here's what that looks like I want us to find transformation boring in five years. Not really but I want to hear those stories so commonly because that's what creates that sense of awe and wonder. And in addition to that, I want to see us, the vast majority of people in our church, equipping and investing in someone else so that they too know how to hear the voice of Jesus. You and I We're created to have an interactive relationship with God. That's what we had in the garden. We walked with God in the cool of the day. Our sin disrupted that relationship. So fast forward to the 21st century, and we are overstimulated, overwhelmed, stressed out, depressed, anxious, grieving, angry, medicated, tired, and above all, desperate to hear the voice of Jesus. And we are still desperate, because deep down, after all the Bible studies and service projects and missions trips and church attendances and doing the right thing moments, we still know that somehow we are disconnected from the voice of Jesus. We are disconnected from that interactive relationship with Jesus and that's the frontier. The frontier is becoming a church where we are growing all the time in our capacity and training others in the capacity to have an ongoing interactive friendship with Jesus where prayer isn't just talking to God. Prayer is talking with him. Where even our worst moments And our most horrendous memories are connected to the presence of Jesus. And this is hard work, but hear me on this. Jesus already got there first. He says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. Jesus longs for us to hear his voice, to follow him, to have an interactive relationship with him. So here's the frontier. We're going to become a church that transforms a church marked by awe and wonder let me pray and then steph will lead us in response time god even in this moment as we respond to you would you increase our capacity to hear your voice and do what you say not just today but every day amen
1: one of the reasons why we do response time is so that we can experience transformation Right, Because if we just sit in this space um, and maybe are really struck by something that we hear and we walk out those doors and we don't do anything with that, then we're still stuck. And so um, I really want to just highlight that's why we do this time of response, why we do just pause for a couple minutes and really seek to hear the Father's voice so that we can have a plan for how we're going to do what he's inviting us to do. Um, I just want to say again, if you're someone who is not sure that you want to be transformed by Jesus, I just keep thinking that, that there's probably at least one, if not more, people sitting here who are not sure exactly what they think about Jesus, that Alpha would be a great place to start to ask some of those questions and really figure out, like, is following Jesus for me? Um, and then secondly, um, as Kyle was preaching and talking about transformation, I just couldn't get away from the idea that repentance is also part of the process. That if you feel stuck, if you feel... Um, like there's a wall between you and the Father, between you and Jesus, um, that there may be a sin that you just can't walk away from, that there may be um, a behavioral pattern that you just can't stop that keeps Jesus um, from really being able to transform. And so um, as we kind of take this time, whether it's a sin or whether it's um, a fear or unbelief, um, I just want to invite you to take this time and really invite Jesus in. Um, whether that's into your pain, into your sin, into your unbelief, um, and just really invite you to have ears to hear what the Father's saying, what He's inviting you into this week. Um, and then I would encourage you, um, you know, if, if Jesus did something today for you, to tell one other person, to tell um, a friend, to tell your roommate, to tell your spouse, um, to tell maybe your parent, just to say, hey, as I was sitting there, this is really what I sensed Jesus saying, and this is, what, and this is how I'm going to respond. So we'll take a couple minutes. Uh, the band's going to play the song, and then we'll take communion.